Anybody here Colton and Cassie fans? Anybody have any idea what I'm talking about? <laughs> What's that? Did he? All right, Milo knows. Good. Right on. <laughs> if you're not up to speed, they are the result of the 23rd um, season of The Bachelor. Colton was actually an NFL tight end uh, who showed up in season 14 of The Bachelorette, uh, where he was sent packing by that year's star. Um, but his general mystique as a TV personality, some of you guys are going, I know all of this, but I'm not going to admit it in church. Um, <laughs> as a TV personality, his general mystique increased when he uh, uh, went on a kind of post-season interview and admitted that he's a 26-year-old virgin, kind of made a huge stir. Um, and then he went on season five of The Bachelor in Paradise and got even bigger. Well, then he got cast as The Bachelor for season 23 of The Bachelor. It got became an even bigger deal when getting toward the end of the season, there's four or five girls left, and he, uh, up and out of nowhere, the girl Cassie just quits. She just drops out on her own because she had a feeling he was going to propose at the end of this thing, and she didn't feel like she was ready for that. So she just dropped out. Well, come to find out, that's who he had his heart set on. And so he bolts and jumps a fence and, like, leaves the set. And it made big TV drama uh, the next week. Like, they're, they almost doubled their viewership because of the way he left the thing. Well, in the finale, he basically dumps everybody that's left, goes rogue, and goes to Cassie's house and, uh, and convinces her he's not going to... Uh, propose and just ask her if they can go out. And so they started dating and they're actually still dating. Which brings up two questions. Number one, the one that I hope you would ask is, dear God, please tell me my pastor does not watch The Bachelor. <laughs> um, and number two, what in the world are we going to be talking about this morning that might have anything to do with Colton and Cassie? Both good questions. And the first um, question, the answer is no, I do not watch The Bachelor. I've never watched a single episode I had to go to the like recap cheat websites to find all this out. I've never, uh, I have no idea how the show even works. And if you do watch it, I, I'm not judging much. Um, but the answer to the second question is that we're going to be talking about real life today. And what is more real life than reality television? Um, I mean, the reason I love, I do love the idea of the bachelor is because it's so real. It, it takes me back to all those times when I had 30 beautiful women. You know, competing over me. And, uh, and, uh, you know, and they were patiently waiting as I cut them out one at a time. You know, it's, it's so real. Um, I can, I can remember those days. But 8.2 million viewers, 18 to 49, watched the final episodes of season 23 of The Bachelor. Because we love reality television. At my age, I wish I could get back all the time I've spent watching Fixer Upper and the Great British Bake Off and Duck Dynasty. No, I would watch that again. Um, and all the shows like that, not to mention the hours spent on YouTube and Facebook watching the, the, the episodes from The Voice and all the Got Talent shows that make me cry every single time. I have no idea why, but when they hit the yellow buzzer, I'm all tears. It's just ridiculous. What's funny is that just this week I was actually talking to one of my sons who's been watching clips from WWE on YouTube. So, like, right after I disowned him, I talked to him about um, about how when I was a kid, we used to like get in real fights over whether or not that stuff was real. Like if you were on one side, you were like, no, that's real. It's real wrestling. They really do that stuff. 
Like, there's no way you can punch somebody in the face 45 times and not be a bloody mess. Like, we would just argue like crazy over whether or not it was real. And what's nuts is you could probably do that with 75% of our television today. You know, that stuff's totally real. It's, it's reality TV. There's no way that stuff is real. And so we're going to talk about reality. Whichever side you're on uh, with TV today, you know it's not real. And this morning, we're going to ask the same question about worship. The, the title of my sermon today is Worship in the Real World. Worship in the Real World. We started this series last week talking about how we are designed for worship. We went all the way back to the Garden of Eden and we talked about how before there was sin, before anything was broken, when everything was the way it was supposed to be, we found out we were created to be in submission to and subject to something greater than us. We were created to kind of bow to something bigger than us. We were The way we put it last week was like this. We are not created to be the biggest thing in your life. You were not created to be the biggest thing in your life. Before anything was wrong, you were still supposed to be subject to something bigger than you. So we laid this foundation for this study by looking at the fact that though we don't always worship the way we're supposed to, though we don't always worship well, we worship. It's what we're wired to do. It's what we're made to do. We absolutely worship. This week and next week's studies, though, kind of go together. So if you're, if you're here this week, I really hope you'll come back next week because these two kind of go together because it might sound like I'm beating up on church worship today because this week we're going to talk about how we worship out there. Next week we're going to talk about how and why we worship in here. And if you only get one of those, you might get a little out of balance. So I hope you'll come back next week. But there's no doubt that church worship can sometimes feel like a reality show. It can sometimes times feel like reality TV. Like you come in here and you just sense this isn't how we normally live. You just, you just sense that, that we act different when we're in here. That, that there's something, you know, we, we put on the smile. You know, we, how you doing? Oh, I'm great. I'm blessed. You know, uh, just scream my head off on the way here at my spouse. But I'm good. I get, you know, I'm, I'm good. If we're honest, Sunday morning feels just a little bit fake. Like watching a reality show. Like you can tell it's not all the way scripted, but you also know it's not all the way real. Sunday morning can feel like that. Because many of us do act differently when we come here. We aren't completely fake. We're not completely false or phony. But we do know we clean up a little bit. We know we're being watched. And when we're being watched, everything changes. And if you're sitting here saying, I don't do that. I'm the same person here as I am anywhere else. You're only saying that because you're at church and people are watching you. So here's the thing I want to do this morning. I want to look at the way I think worship was intended to be. And then after that, I'm going to look at three walls to worshiping the way we're supposed to. And hopefully break them down. Last week, we went back to our original design, how God made us in the beginning to worship. And this week, we're going to fast forward a little bit to the first time God kind of outlines worship, kind of gives a picture, like a, a, a script for how worship is supposed to look. It happened under this guy named Moses, who had just kind of led the people of Israel out of captivity from Egypt. They're out, they're free for the first time in, in a very, very long time. And Moses kind of gives him, he spends a lot of time with God, and he gets this thing we call the Torah or the commands or the law. And he comes out and he gives the people, here's what worship looks like. Here's what it looks like to be uh, part of the people of God. Okay? And a lot of this we're used to. It's the, the moral stuff. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Go to church on Sundays. You know, that kind of stuff. The stuff we're used to when we think about worship, when we think about the commands of God. Very familiar to us. 
And they fit perfectly in the religious side of our life. The, and, and all that comes from the scripture, and we're comfortable with that. But I thought I might cherry pick from, from the Torah a little bit and find some other stuff that, that shows up in there that the original readers would have, would have had that we don't talk about much. For instance, uh, this one. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather before me seventy men who are recognized as elders and leaders of Israel. Bring them to the tabernacle to stand there before you. I will come down and talk to you there. I will take some of the Spirit upon you, and I will put the Spirit upon them also. They will bear the burden of the people along with you, so we will not have to carry it alone. This is the very first kind of election. They set up a government. This is the very first. This is like a constitutional passage where they were, for the very first time, setting up how they were going to run things. So this is not just don't kill, don't steal. This is their constitution. And they said they used it to set up their government. Kind of their very first election, you might say. Then there's this. From the whole community of Israel, record the names of all the warriors and the families. List the men 20 years and older that are able to go to war. The very first census. Tell them how to take a census. This is part of their worship. How to count heads and take a census. Then this. The Lord replied, Take Joshua, son of Nun, who has the spirit on him, and lay your hands on him. Present him to Eleazar the priest before the whole community, and publicly commission him to lead the people. This is their first inauguration. They inaugurated a new leader. This is the change of power, something we value a lot in America, the, the, the peaceful transition of power. This is how they did it. There were outlines on how to put borders on each tribe, how to outline where they, how to write and enforce a contract is in there, how to set up a legal system rightly. They even had an IRS. At the end of every third year, bring the entire tithe of that year's harvest and to store it in the nearest town. Give it to the Levites who will receive no allotment of land among you, as well as to the foreigners living among you, the orphans and the widows in your town, so they can eat and be satisfied. Then the Lord God will bless you in all your work. They had an IRS with, with social programs. They had an FBA. When you build a new house, did I get this right? Oh no, this is the this is OSHA. They had OSHA. When you build a new house, you must build a railing around the edge of your flat roof. That way you will not be considered guilty of murder if someone falls from your roof. They had uh, PETA. You must not muzzle the ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. If you're working an ox in a field and you're plowing field with it, you're not allowed to cover it. No, you got to let it eat some of the grain. Some people were so, you know, wanted every bit of grain they could get that they didn't even want the ox eat, eating some. So they would muzzle the ox so it couldn't eat the grain. And God said, no, no, don't do that. Let the ox eat while it's plowing. They had an armed forces. When you prepare for battle, the priest must come forward and speak to the troops. He will say to them, listen to me, all you men of Israel. Do not be afraid as you go to fight your enemies today. Do not lose heart or panic or tremble before them, for the Lord your God is going with you. He will fight for you against your enemies, and he will give you victory. Then the officers of the army must address the troops. Has anyone here, I love this, has anyone here built a house and not yet dedicated it? If so, go home. You might, have, you might be killed in battle and someone else would dedicate your house. Has anyone here just planted a vineyard and not yet eaten any of its fruit? If so, you may go home. You might die in battle and someone else would eat the first fruit. 
Has anyone here become engaged to a woman and not yet married her? Well, you may go home and get married. You might die and someone else marry her. Well, that would have changed World War II, wouldn't it? <laughs> I love this one. A newly married man must not be drafted into the army or be given any other official responsibilities. He must be free to spend one year at home bringing happiness to the wife he has married. Wouldn't that be awesome? Right? A year honeymoon? Right? <laughs> this is the Torah. A great deal of Torah is also about being just, being fair. You must use accurate scales when you weigh out merchandise. You must use full and honest measures. Yes, always use honest weights and measures so that you may enjoy a long life in the land your God is giving you. All who cheat with dishonest weights and measures are detestable to the Lord your God. It's how you do business. It's how you do business. So why do we read all these dusty commands from the Old Testament? Why spend a Sunday morning talking about scriptures that very few people read and almost nobody quotes? Here's why. Because when Moses said this, now listen, today I'm giving you a choice between life and death between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to keep all His commands, decrees, and regulations by walking in His ways. If you do this, you will live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you and the land you are about to enter and occupy. When Moses said this, they would have had no way of differentiating which of those commands were moral commands and which of those commands were just the way you're supposed to live? They didn't have any way of knowing there was a difference between don't kill, don't steal, and use proper weights and measures when you work with your customers. They wouldn't have known the difference between, uh, they, had a, they had commands on what to do if you get, they call it an infectious mildew. I'm assuming it was black mold. What do you do if you get black mold in your house? They would have had no way of knowing the difference between don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, and here's what you do in your house if you get black mold. To them, there was no difference between a churchy command and a non-churchy, a real-life command. It was all given in the same Torah. It was all given in the same set of commands. God didn't say, these are the, these are the moral issues and these are just the good advice. It was all part of His commands. And by the way, if you remember, Adam and Eve's first worship was what? Obeying a command, a single command. Just don't eat this. You can have all these other things. Obey this one command. When Moses tells the Israelites to obey God, there's no difference between don't steal and don't kill and be honest in your business dealings. Or make sure your guests are safe and don't hurt themselves in your house. Pay your taxes. Treat your animals right. Be a good neighbor. Nowhere in the Torah is there a rating system that says these are the important churchy commands and these are the ones that aren't that big a deal. There's nothing that differentiates. I say all that to say this. The Bible doesn't recognize a difference between church life and real life. To a Jew living, trying to live according to the will of God, how to clean your house, how to... How to do good business, how to offer sacrifices to atone for sin. 
There was no way to define worship separate from my real life. It's all worship. It was all worship to the Jew. The way you ate, the way you dressed, the way you sang, the way you offered sacrifices, it was all worship. Which brings me to the first wall we have to knock down if we're going to worship in the real world. The difference between sacred and secular. This is manufactured. There's actually This is actually rooted in Platonic dualism. Plato came along and, and believed that anything that was spiritual or, or intellectual or what he would call formal was good. And anything that was physical or earthly or sensual, meaning from the senses, was evil. And the church kind of bought into that. But it's not biblical. The Bible doesn't make that distinction. The Bible does set aside things you know, that are specifically for church. There are people whose jobs are specifically for enacting worship. There are, there are, there are certain items that are set aside for God's where we actually get the word sacred. It actually just means set apart. Like set apart for a certain use. But nowhere does the Bible give a value system saying those things are in any way more valuable than everyday stuff. We manufactured that. The, the Bible didn't do that. The Bible, if anything, stresses the, the intense value and sacredness of the ordinary. Of the, the everyday, the way you do your work. The way you change a diaper. And we've misvalued things all the time. I actually read an article once. Um, it was a historian who was kind of tracking the, um, the extension of the human lifespan and trying to track back to at what point humans started living longer. And he came up with the conclusion that plumbers have saved far more lives than doctors. He said, when we got plumbing, when we got sewage out of our houses and out of our streets, the human lifespan extended. He was like, he was like if you know a plumber, thank him. They're, they're, they're responsible for, for way better living than, than doctors. Doctors save a lot of lives, but plumbers save ten times more. Like, but we have a tendency to think of plumbers as kind of this blue-collar service job, and doctors, you know, they're, they're a value. And, and, and nowhere is that, does that make any sense. So the little distinction between church stuff and non-church stuff might exist. We can't all be pastors. Otherwise, who would we preach to? I guess we just preach to each other. But, so there are church jobs, there's non-church jobs, but none of that is, is a distinction between what is holy and what is unholy. In, in God's economy, there is no difference. Everything we do is sacred. Everything we do is, is part of our worship. The Bible is clear that changing diapers is as much worship as singing raise a hallelujah. Being fair with a customer is as much worship as prayers to the people. Putting on a handrail on your stairs so people don't fall down is as biblical as telling people about Jesus. We have to break down the wall between the sacred and the secular. Everything is sacred. The second wall that needs to come down if we're going to worship in the real world is the wall, is the wall between faith and doubt. We've been taught that doubt is bad. That somehow... Uh, Faith and, and that faith equals certainty. And this summer when we were studying David's psalms and we, we spent a good long chunk on, on the lament psalms, the psalms where David kind of shares his pains and his, even his doubts and his frustrations, I was blown away by how many big Bible names, big Bible characters doubted. And they doubted 
and questioned God directly. Gideon, one of the most famous judges, said this. Sir, Gideon replied, an angel had come to Gideon and told Gideon he was, he was a mighty warrior for God. Gideon said, sir, if the Lord... Is, oh, he said, mighty warrior, the Lord is with you, is what he said. This is Gideon's response. Uh, sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Anybody ever said that? Anyone? Where's all these miracles that seem to happen? And where are all the miracles that the ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. That's one of the good guys. Jeremiah, one of the major prophets, said this. Why then does my suffering continue? Why is my wound so incurable? Your help seems like an uncertain, seems as uncertain as a seasonal brook, like a spring that's gone dry. I don't know if I can say that to God. I think that might scare me to say that to God. Your help seems like an unseasonal brook, like a spring that's gone dry. You can like sense the bitterness in it. Habakkuk, one of the minor prophets, said this. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Anybody ever read the news and wanted to say that? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed, and there's no justice in the courts. Man, preach it, Habakkuk. The wicked far outnumber the righteous, so that justice has become perverted. That's Habakkuk talking to God. Somewhere, we came up with the idea that non-Christians, whenever bad things happen, non-Christians question God. Like, where's your God if, if all this terrible... If your God's so good, why is there so much evil? Anybody ever bump into that? You know, that, that the people do? If... What's ironic is in the Bible, it was the believers saying that. Not the non-believers. We've somehow come, to, come up with the idea that it's our, it's our job in those moments to defend God. Like, come up with these like rational work-around answers. Well, you have to understand that God knows that. You know, and we try to explain. But in the Bible, they just went, I don't know. Why is God doing this? It was the believers that, that doubted and just went to God and said, God, why is this happening? But the key is they went to God with it. They went to God and said, I don't understand this at all. Why is there so much evil? Why are shooters shooting everybody? I don't get this, God. And we've somehow come up with the idea that that's, like, that's, that's unbelieving or doubting or that it's a bad thing. But it's not. If we're going to worship God in the real world, we've got to take our real world stuff to Him. They go, God, I just don't get this. I do not understand where you are right now. Because it feels like you're gone. It feels like you're absent. If we're going to worship God right where we live, we have to be honest with Him. Who's steering the ship up there? Historically, these were questions that the Christians answered, that the believers asked. Which leads to our third wall. And this is probably a variation of the second one, but we have to tear down the wall between good days and bad days. Many of us, and I struggle with this one, associate worship with celebration. Like something you do on a good day. When everything's going right and you worship. Like, woohoo, praise God. You know, everything's awesome. We, we celebrate worship with our good days. 
And worship absolutely can be a celebration. And, and when things are going great, it comes easy and it's amazing. But biblically, this is only part of what's considered worship. In the book of Psalms, which is kind of the Bible's worship book, a full one-third of the Psalms, 50 of the 150 Psalms, are considered lament psalms, like negative psalms. Psalms that somebody, a song that somebody wrote to God on a really bad day. When they were really sad or really angry or feeling really cheated, they, they went to God and they wrote worship music about it. And I'm not talking about learning to smile and go, praise Jesus when you're having a bad day. That's not worshiping on a bad day. Worshiping on a bad day is going, this sucks. And I'm going to talk to God about it. Worshiping right where we are. Which brings us to the Old Testament's definition of worship. Shachah. This is the word that the Old Testament uses for worship. It happens 171 times in the Old Testament. The definition is kind of interesting. To depress, that is to prostrate, to bow down, to crouch, to fall down. And when the Old Testament talks about worship, uh, it's sending this image of bowing, of bowing down, of, of prostrating ourselves. What's interesting is a lot of the people that, that the Bible uses this word to bow down are dancing or jumping or shouting or, or, or standing. So it's not like a physical bowing down. A lot of people worship while dancing, but they use the word bow down when they talk about it. It's a bowing of our heart. This is a heart condition. God looks at our hearts. But how do we respond to this? I honestly believe that you can sing songs in church, that you can jump up and down, you can put your hands in the air, and not have your heart bow. And I honestly believe you can, you can be mowing your lawn with a, with a worshipful, bowed heart. You can, be, you can be doing changing diapers, doing dishes. In fact, one of my favorite books, Practicing the Presence of God, Brother Lawrence, who wrote the book, was a, was a dishwasher. That's what he did. That's all he did. He was a dishwasher. And, and he set out to see if he could recognize the presence of God in every moment, just to try to keep his attention focused on God. And he kind of journaled through it, and it became this little book called Practice the Presence of God. What's amazing is this uneducated dishwasher, powerful, educated people would come to him and ask him to, to be their, his, their spiritual director. They would, eat, they would send him letters and go, what is different about you? What is, what is amazing about you? He would just send back, all I do is try to recognize the presence of God in my life. Everything he did, he did with a bow head. He, did, he washed dishes and he repaired monk's shoes. That was, all, that was all he did. And he's got one of the best-selling books in history because he had a worshipful heart. He didn't have to be writing theological texts or writing music or doing anything amazing. He was just trying to worship God while doing dishes. Please come back next week because I really do believe we need church worship. I'm going to preface this next thing with that. You do not have to be in here to worship. Worship something we just do all the time. It's the way you talk to your spouse, the way you raise your kids, the way you deal with customers and coworkers, the way you watch the news, the way you vote, the way you drink beer, the way you spend your money, the way you... All of that can be worship if your heart is bowed. It's supposed to be worship. Nowhere did God 
differentiate to the Jews which acts were worshipful, like offering sacrifices, and which weren't. He just said, obey all my commands. Here's the beauty of it. When Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. When we bump into a situation and we're like, I don't want to. Not today. She's being mean. I'm not going to love her today. I know you guys don't do that. Every once in a while, I, I think that. And, but if I decide in that moment to bow my heart to God and go, you know what? I'm going to obey. I don't want to. I don't feel it. It's, it's, but I'm, because God said to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to love my wife. I'm, I might even grumble while I'm doing it, but I'm going to do it obediently because God told You know what's amazing? Is what do you think is going to happen in your relationship when you do that? It's going to get better, and you're going to get to reap the benefits, and you don't even have to tell her it was out of worship. You don't even have to tell her you were only doing it to be obedient. You can just love her, and she's not going to know the difference, and your relationship's going to get better. Things turn out better for you because you chose to worship God. Which is what I love about the Torah. It's, we have this, sometimes we get mixed up and we have this feeling that God needs our worship. That he's like, he's like sitting up there lonely and desperate for someone to tell him how amazing he is. That's not it at all. God is a perfect community. That's the beauty of the Trinity is God is in perfect community and doesn't need our worship. He knows that it does us good to do it. When we go to the Torah and we're like, I don't understand these commands, but I'm going to obey them because God said to you. It turns out better for us. We get blessed by worshiping God. You don't even have to want to live a good life. When we do it as a worship to God, we get to reap the benefits of that. When we live a life of worship, we get blessed. It's that simple. It's that simple. God doesn't hang out in heaven like waiting to thump us if we get out of line, like, oh, you're going against what I said. I'm going to punish you. He just knows where these things lead. And he's like, hey, do it my way. Even if you just do it because I told you to, and you don't know why, just do it because it's going to work out so much better for you. He begs us to live in such a way that we would be blessed. And he calls it worship. My heart for us today as we respond to this message is that we just might simply bow our hearts. While we're here hanging out together in church and while we're out in the real world, we're so full of faith that feels like God is standing right next to us and when we feel like we can't find Him at all. When we're on the mountaintop, thrilled to be alive, or on the valley, wondering if we can go on. In all those situations, my prayer would be that we would bow our hearts to God. No matter what we're doing, we would bow our hearts to God and say, I don't understand it, but you're on top, and I want to do things your way. I don't get it. Everyone else in my business is cheating, but I know you said not to. And it, it seems easier to just go ahead and cheat, but I'm not going to because you said it's not the way to get ahead. So I'm not going to. I know that everyone else is doing this thing. It seems so old and antique to try to do it your way, but you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Because you said to. And I trust you. I trust you. Psychologists have figured out that while trying to unlock the intricacies of the human psyche by observing the humans interacting, they figured out that when they watch, people don't act the same. 
it's, it's one of the complexities of, of psychology is you can't just put people in a room and go, okay, just be normal. We're going to watch and see how you be normal. Because <laughs> people don't act normal when you do that to them. There's a fancy way of saying that reality TV is not real. When people know we're watching, they act different. I'm tiptoeing into next week's sermon, but we don't want to be a reality TV church. We don't want an atmosphere that pretends to be real when everybody knows it's not. We want to be real. Real people really worshiping a real God. Let's go to the table. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you were submissive. Even when you were like, God, if there's any way for this to pass from me, let this pass from me. I don't want to do this. You ended with, not my will, but yours be done. God, give us that heart. Give us that heart of worship to say, not my will, but yours be done. whether it's at work, whether it's at home with our families, whether it's here at church, whether it's reaching out to the broken. The cry of our hearts would be, not my will, but yours be done. Because when we make that move, we're the ones who are trying to us. In Jesus' name. Amen.